Between the Chapters, a weekly podcast discussion focusing on a chapter of the book, 25 Years of EdTech, written by Martin Weller. Here's your host, Laura Pasquini. Welcome to another episode. This is us talking about Chapter 3, 1996, Computer Mediated Conversation with two guests, Claire Thompson and Mark Brown. Welcome. Thank you so much for having us. Yes. Mark, welcome. Well, hi. Uh, delighted to be here um, and share some reflection, shall we say. All right. So the point of this podcast, I told my guests today, is we are going way, way back to talk about the things we knew. They really make meaning to the things we do today. So let's start with some retrospective on this. Uh, where were you situated back in the day, Mark, thinking about CMC? Well, 1996, I was in uh, Massey University in New Zealand. I think I was a relatively junior lecturer at that time. Um, but actually, I think for me, CMC sort of started um, probably around 1993, and I appreciate these boundaries are quite soft. Um, that's the year that Howard Rheingold um, published the seminal book on the virtual community. And it's also the same year when Linda Harrison published her book on computers and international communi communication. Um, and of course, it then went on in 1996 to have published Learning Networks, uh, a field guide for teaching and learning online. And, and in many respects, you know, it's a real flashback to the past because we're still talking about networks and CMC is the core of where this all began. I think you're right. Claire, what, what were you thinking about in terms of this chapter? Because I know you had some love for the CMC, Computer Media Communication. So my love's a little bit nostalgic in that I'll give away things by saying that 1996 was the year of my undergraduate graduation. So I'm coming at it from a point where my undergraduate studies in the University of Edinburgh didn't really have communication Digitally, uh, the focus for digital was about um, word processing and Excel and more of that side of things. So email was really something we were experimenting with at the time of graduation in 96 and something that I then started to work on and gradually come into at that point. So it was nostalgia, really, that was bringing me to this chapter. Yeah, it's something I've talked about um, and having conversations about everything from uh, the web and the BBS, I have to remind folks that when mo most of us were working and or going to school at universities and colleges during this time, there wasn't a lot of connectivity when it comes to where this communication goes and how it's how it is mediated. And it was, I, I thought of, I read this chapter as my audiobook. I thought of really the IRC. Um, I thought about like things that in Canada we had at the time was very, uh, like you said, one way or it wasn't uh it was the bulletin board systems i, I talked with alan levine on the first bonus episode um it wasn't what we thought it could be but it's a really foundational chapter is what i thought and i don't know what that meant for your work going forward for both of you well for me um i guess the power of the network uh is something that we mostly um benefit from today that didn't exist in the same way those networks certainly weren't as digital then um, I know in 1996, I was working with uh, Professor Bill Hunter from Calgary on a really quite innovative project with our student teachers, where they were involved in a virtual practicum, 
with a school in Vanderhoof, British Columbia. And anyone who knows Canada will know that's reasonably remote. Um, at the time, the British Columbian government had made funding available for children being homeschooled to, for their parents or caregivers to purchase a computer and network connection, internet connection. And homeschooling is, was at that time becoming quite a, a growth uh, element or the, um, area. And so what we took advantage of is the fact they were networked suddenly. Um, and of course, we're talking the years of where Netscape was the dominant browser and very recently uh, introduced. So um, what the parents didn't have is the educational background to provide the curriculum, if you like, in a way. So our student teachers in New Zealand um, were paired up with the children, um, but initially they had to be vetted by the parents because there was also um, quite a conservative dimension, shall we say, to the homeschooling, perhaps fair to say a religious aspect. Uh, and their parents were also concerned about what their children, even back then, might be doing on Netscape. Um, so cut a long story short, um, we ran um, whole lessons which were packaged as units of work or themes. They were very thematic based. Um, the time zone difference tended to work quite well. Um, the students even produced um, the children's work or the students' work into web pages. Um, a lot of scavenger hunting type activities going on. And there was a real pioneering element to it. I, I mean, it's very important, I think, to emphasize that there was a deep theoretical framework informing our, um, what we were trying to do. Um, in my own case, it was kind of what I'd describe as a triarchic perspective, a very strong Vygotsky and dialogical view, um, literature around metacognition, um, was very important at that time and the social nature of the origin of metacognition and then um, sort of constructivist and connectivist sort of thinking, although connectivism wasn't really um, something articulated like that. But it was a pretty interesting experience. The students um, and the student teachers interacted by email, um, artifacts produced on the web in that space. So even HTM coding at the time or, um, was all very new and we all thought we were being pretty pioneering. To be honest, um, Bill and I presented at Boston's Ed Media Conference um, in 1996 on the results of this, but I cannot lay my hands now on the paper we produced because that's the nature of the technology we're using. <laughs> I cannot locate it, and even if I could, I probably couldn't open it. So more than enough for me. No, that's amazing. This is I love to hear these stories, uh, Mark, because I think this is really the core of what, what Martin talked about in this chapter, I love that we talked about things that are building for now, like everything you said is resonating in the 2020 world of learning. Um, we know that things like uh, remote learning is not new. <laughs> we know that distance education is far older than we think and goes spans before the web. And um, as a Canadian, I can say that there's a lot, there's always been distance learning because we have remote areas and our pockets of population are not. Like many countries, we have sparsely populated areas and then dense areas along the border in our country, in Canada. And so I think about um, the ways that you were testing and experimenting and uh, thinking about uh, that quote unquote infinite lecture hall that Martin wrote about. Um, it really was like a kind of like a sandbox you were playing in in 96. That's quite early but possible. And so if we could do it then, then 
what's going on today? Like, this is what it make me, this is making me think of, like, how can we do it better today and learn from the lessons of the past, really? If I just come in, just one thing, um, yeah. is, uh, the metaphor that really I think we may have used in one or two of the publications we produced was around borderless learning. And in some respects, I think if we look at what we have now, we have more borders, not less. Um, the borderless learning there, I talked about the pioneering aspect to it, but uh, also because we didn't know uh, what we didn't know, uh, we were able to get away with things that perhaps we couldn't. Um, in this case, because of the uh, element of the parents and the homeschooling dimension, I'm always very uh, drawn from Neil Postman's book back, was it in 1977, on teaching as a subversive activity. We were actually being quite subversive with these children um, in the kind of curriculum they were being introduced to that they probably wouldn't have received through their homeschooling. Uh, that did raise a few challenges further down the track in the project. But, yeah, that kind of metaphor of borderless learning that we were talking about, I'm not sure we're quite as borderless now. Uh, maybe it's because those borders have been removed and we don't have that conception. But at the time, it was pretty amazing to think we were able to span these boundaries that have historically, geographically constrained us. Interesting. We do still have borders and boundaries that we've set up. I wonder if it's not as open um, and thinking about that, uh, that's something I, I still I want to come back to because I think it's important to recognize that it was bound, those boundaries were open and are we always that open now? So some of this chapter does le lend the work to where um, future chapters go into openness, open education uh, textbooks, open education resources, open textbooks, MOOCs, dare I say, other things. But maybe we've also put those barriers up as well for... I'm going to call it out capitalism. I don't know, something like that. So um, that's that's just what I was thinking. Um, Claire, what do you, what have you th thought about in re reading back to this chapter and thinking about where you were at in that time? Because uh, you weren't, you may have just been starting your career then. Yeah, well, I think I was thinking more because I did pick up on one of the later quotations of Martin's with um, "Ed Tech is not a game for the impatient." And I think that's really encapsulates exactly what we've just said. So we keep thinking, we keep pretending we're reinventing, we keep thinking we're moving fast and we're not really at all. So I was thinking more about the borders that the complexity of the later years have brought to us. So the, geog the geography is one thing, but working students is quite another, working full time and studying as a mature student is quite another. And I think that's where CMC came into my later years rather than the 1996 years is um, really is professional development as well. For learning technologists, there's not many of us. We're growing in number, but we're still nothing compared to the number of teachers, the number of nurses, number of doctors. And we need those dialogues we need to make those connections and even though sometimes crossing the border is only a couple of hundred miles it's still absolutely crucial to keep conversations going to share the work that Mark has talked about to share those things at conferences that we can't physically get to even though it's perhaps only 100 miles away so I'm really thinking about the borders in a different way than just geography I like that. That's a good call out, uh, Claire. I do think um, you're right. We've put up our own little 
boundaries to ourselves and and, and we cannot rec- not talk about that it's a pandemic now and we're going to be going back into lockdown some areas that and some folks I'm speaking to directly um we're hitting the second or third wave or we've probably been the first wave in denial if you're like me and living in America um so there are some things that I think you're right it does influence the domains that we've supported and ed tech at the time was like maybe education and bit of technology or was we do distance or people separated them a little bit into what we in practice. So now I think about the disciplines that are really creative and getting into um, teaching in these ways with CMC. And you're, you said it, well, healthcare is one. They're so cool in how they train and teach technicians to nurses, to doctors. But um, were they always part of that conversation in, in the early 90s, mid 90s? I don't, I don't know. And that was just the nature of we're just figuring out right now with um, CMC and getting the mass distribution of uh, what learning is and how it's not just a broadcast event. That kind of cues me into one of the lessons um, that we still carry with us today, I think, but is evident back then, is how people take their preconceptions of what education is and um, how you teach and bring it to the next wave of technology. So. Uh, and this is referred to in the chapter when Martin um, calls out the difference between, you know, XMOOCs and CMOOCs um, because the seeds of that were very clear then. The project that I described, um, we were not trying to replicate the virtual lecture hall. Um, and isn't it ironic that it wasn't very long after this period that Blackboard arose and the metaphor of Blackboard, which still exists today. So for me, there's this fundamental tension um, and tension probably sees it too much on a binary. I think it's much more complex than that. But we still have this conception of the virtual lecture hall, um, which, of course, emergency remote teaching has tried to replicate in a synchronous form largely. But what we were trying to do in our project was have a much flatter relationship, a co-design experience, you could say, more like the CMOOC, um, mm-hmm. because the student teachers... We're trying to co-collaborate on projects and initiatives and produce authentic artefacts. Um, they certainly weren't engaged in trying to deliver the content um, because suddenly we had an unlimited amount of content. It was actually knowing what to do with that content and uh, adding the dialogical dimension to it. No, you make a good call out. And for listeners that don't know what a C MOOC is, uh, that's the connectivist is the C and the nature was bringing together ideas like blogs and learning communities and different people around uh, i almost think of them as a community of practice or community of inquiry um where they've come together versus these other MOOCs that are been put out by institutions for let's call it marketing purposes um so yes i do think or like a curriculum based MOOC um i do think you've made a good call out that these earlier um ways that you were kind of teaching and was let's congregate around this idea and topic and learn and why can't we bring that back now that um we've forgotten these things and how how much of a um amnesia does ed tech have is what i was reading back in martin's intro like we forget that we've done these things before and it's not all new um but it can be done in different ways and your tensions you speak of mark i think it's like a spectrum and you could be a different kind of uh learn like teaching and learning online could look like xyz depending on where you fall on the spectrum and your needs for the learners and who says it has to be one way and 
Why do we let them do take it for us? Why do we let Black or tell us how to teach? That's my question. <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, but like, what are what are some other things we're thinking about um, from this chapter? Well, I, I think I was reading it because I obviously came back to um, going through it again at this point after the pandemic. And as someone who's been supporting staff exactly on that, so my job is Blackboard, my job is Collaborate, and just the conversations that we have had as a team and all learning technologists have had again and again is something that comes back to this fact that we have been doing all these things for a lot of years but who are we we're not the scale we're not the mainstream number of educators and it's really I've really reflected on two things on that throughout the supporting of people and it's really having that conversation first they want to come with a problem and they want a technical solution and what they get is us querying them why are you doing this have you thought about what's your design where's the communication points and that is not what they expect for a start and that then starts a whole other sort of possible tensions but the other thing that comes out and that I've really had to question and come back to again and again this whole time is even in this little chapter, the number of technical things that we keep using. So in one chapter, we've got CMC, we've got MOOCs, BBS, OER, XMOOC, CMOOC, LMS, CBT, MUD, VOIP, and it's just endless, the things that trip off our tongue so easily and that is just such a block in general as we have these scaling conversations that we've had to have throughout the pandemic. We're going to refer to Claire's alphabet soup or wrap, I'll call it, uh, to, to, to the book. You can find it in there and I'll put some th- links to her notes. I think you're absolutely right, Claire. I think, um, I think you've also sparked an idea that Maybe we need to have a revolution at tech folks and think about where do we bring it back to some of these initial questions on um, not always jumping to a platform because people have done that, like you said, LMS, learning management system, or dare I say Zoom. Um, And it's kind of scary to me that we've just said, let's put our learning here without thinking about what those root questions you've just asked is what do you want to be doing with it and what's your purpose and I don't I'm glad that we still have uh, whatever you're called a learning technologist a learning experience designer instructional technologist instructional designer uh, someone who just cares about learning (laughs) period no title um, to ask those questions before you jump to the thing and the tech Um, because I think those are some things I was really thinking about when we got to the end of the chapter and Martin raised questions. Sometimes I want to ask him questions in these podcasts, which I told him he can answer later as he listens to them. Um, But he raised questions around like, what should explicit and direct communication be between students? Like these were early questions that I don't know if we've still answered or resolved today in all the ways we have learning showing up online, whether it's for emergency remote to honestly just online learning that I saw when I was a faculty member. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I'm not sure this is a quite a follow-up, uh, but as you were talking, what came to my mind was how it's a, a cliche on the one hand, but it's also perhaps a truism that less is more. So uh, when I was just thinking about the experience that we had, it was pretty low tech. Um, but actually that low tech aspect, um, having to wait for the emails to return, um, 
had a pedagogical dimension, a learning element that in design, if not by um, purpose, by accident, that really supported quite deep learning. So the fact that people had to write and respond and reflect before, it wasn't instantaneous, we weren't having synchronous interaction, um, and we were just using a two or three technologies. Whereas one of the challenges we now face is from a learning design perspective, where do you start? What do you choose? Um, having said that, this is not a popular argument, but um, another thing that came to my mind is technology matters. I say it's not a popular argument because you'll hear people say it's the pedagogy, not the technology matters. I kind of don't entirely subscribe to that view. I think it's much more interactive or um, in to twine, shall we say. So, you know, the technologies we now have available to us open up many new and different possibilities than we had back there in um, the period that I just was describing. So we may have done things actually quite differently, um, but equally too many technologies, we are at risk of what I sometimes describe as the techno-sophistication effects. Um, trying to unpack what we really want to do. And, you know, even those of us from a teaching and educational background from time to time get caught up in the thrill of the next big thing. Um, mm. And, you know, there's a few next big things now, the, the chapters that are going to go on over the next decade. Yeah, and your technology matters, I'd say, could go either way. It could be a positive or a negative, or it doesn't matter. And so as you were talking, uh, that threw me back to, like, Marshall McLuhan's The Medium is the message and sometimes it is um I, and sometimes how we phrase things like how it carries is really important and then the flip to that is um i really i really like how you're thinking about we have maybe too much choice and so we have decision fatigue in some ways or um that shiny object syndrome like oh i want to play with that and see what that experiment with that and who gets um lost in that experiment is it the faculty we support the students that we teach are confused and when it could simply be a really good x and you're right what like give them two things share your learning materials this way and have one thing to interact and that's it um but the other comment that i think is lost that what we aren't doing now from the 90s is there's more wait time there's more space so where is the white edge in spaces is what i'm thinking about from what you you just mentioned no i thinking exactly that, that it's the caught in the headlights situation because where people have little confidence in technology and we're convincing them that things are stable and that it's going to hold up while we're crossing our fingers and toes. And it is, it's, it's taking that piece of advice and saying, use the thing you know and use it well. Don't try and learn a thing that is going to stress you out because that's mm -hmm. going to come through. So if you're stressed, you think it's going to break, it is going to break, you're doing it wrong. The students will pick up on that and then it will just spiral out. So it, it, we have been really coming back to that. It's like take what you know, use it really, really well and use it consistently. If you want to learn something, learn one thing. Get it under your belt, then move on. Because I think people, because it's such a swift move and we're – trying to catch up, that some of those time things and some of those slower asynchronous things don't hold as much, of perhaps, of the shine to them. But yet, it's the thing that we would say, go with first, go with the forums, go with asynchronous, slow everything down. The students want slower. And I think 
the staff would like slower if they gave themselves that space exactly as you're talking about using the space constructively really yeah i wish we could slow it down i would like the slow the slow roll of our lives um i think yeah a lot of folks are hitting a, a fatigue point for a lot of these technologies and i I don't know if that's the pressure to be, um, we've moved from CMC to, the, which are our building blocks for things we use now that are into synchronous video, to social media, to text, to everything else that's really immediate. And maybe we need to set our own boundaries of how immediate they are because you don't have to get back to someone. I'm okay if someone does respond for a couple of weeks, a couple of days on email, text, I don't, that's fine with me. But other people feel that immediacy like, it has to happen now and maybe we've offered too many ways to just click and do that. I think that's a broader social issue we're facing. Um, it's not a new issue. Uh, the praise of slow movement has been around now for close to a decade and there is a risk of kind of neo-romanticism here because life has always been busy um, for busy people. Uh, it's just a different kind of busyness but that's not to dismiss some of the challenges, mental health challenges right now that people are the well-being issues um, as we're all under, you know, a lot of stress. Um, but the two things that I really take from this chapter in my own personal reflections is back then this communication in CMC was crucial. Um, and I'm not sure we've still really understood just how that, how important that communication aspect is because we're still trying to deliver content. And for me, teaching has very little to do with delivering content. In fact, I'm almost, um, it's an antithesis of teaching, good teaching for me. It's about building communities of learners um, because we co-design that content, we co-construct the content. Um, and you know, the idea that we can somehow deliver content to people um, is a very strong view of learning and a metaphor, if you like, that continues to remain in whatever new technology you're introducing, whether that be artificial intelligence now um, or, you know, synchronous forms of teaching. The other thing that I take away on a personal note is, God, I must be getting old. Uh, this was way back in 1996. <laughs> hey, that's okay. Claire, what are you taking from this chapter? A little bit of that, yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Absolutely. It's the same thing. It's that we have been working hard on OER. We've been working hard on student engagement and co-production. And it's, I talked about this earlier in our chat, and that is just again changing that culture. So I think the thing that takes me back is that I was always interested in learning a different way and what's going on and exploring the new areas but that's not something that everybody is comfortable with. And uh, the um, Edinburgh Manifesto launched this week. It's the same thing we were talking about. It's all those kind of challenging words about messiness and unexpectedness and trying to change things up. And people just want to be able to do what they did before, but with technology. And I think it's not just CMC. It's not just how we look at it, it's really changing a culture and I'm really, really interested to see if the pandemic and the situation is going to change that. It's not changed it overnight. It didn't happen because of March, April, May and June. 
but it will be interesting to see if over the next year things start to change and the communication and clear communication becomes more of the core of what we do and what we expect from students and more of a dialogue. That's really what I'm hoping kind of from the basis of this chapter and everything we've been doing. Well, we've put that on the world now, so that's bound to happen. I love that you both said the two things Mark Martin talked about was we need to be explicit in our design of communication, and it doesn't just happen, so we should stop assuming it happens, and creating spaces for community and conversation and nuances is going to look different, and it shouldn't be just like it is in face-to-face because there's so many other factors that come in when it's mediated online. And um, I love that you have joined me to talk about this today. Is there any questions we have for Martin or, or things we're like, I wish you included this Martin or critiques? And if not, then I won't include it. But I always ask this question or what other thoughts do you think uh, you would like to ask him? And we, I like to give him homework sometimes too, or uh, thoughts for him in general. For me, there's probably a running theme here between uh, and the examples that I certainly shared were cottage innovations of the time. Um, The theme is how you take innovation from the edge and scale that um, and retain the innovation, but scale it where an institution, uh, an organisation is able to duplicate, replicate um, and and take it forward in a development sense. And so there's almost an oxymoron here because it was innovative because it was on the edge. Um, We were pushing boundaries because we were able to, At the time, I guess even at a personal level, I would not have had the agency or the tool set to know how to scale that in my institution. So I think we do have many more people now in roles they didn't exist in those days, um, in leadership roles, even organisations, units within universities. But at the same time, it's my sort of observation about, I guess, I use Blackboard as an example, but it could be any of the learning management systems or virtual learning environments, depending upon what part of the world you're in, that have been scaled quite successfully. If there's one you know, real success story, it's a chapter in, uh, down the road, but have they been able to scale the innovation underneath um, the early initiatives? Um, so that's a real question we haven't, I think, yet fully grappled with. Um, and it's uh, an ongoing tension because in my own role and an institutional leadership uh, position, you do want the scale, but with that scale comes compromises because it kind of needs to work. Um, and you have to have some confidence that certain things are going to work when they're meant to work. For me, I would say it's the culture aspect. So it's really just asking Martin where he thinks that we can use his work, his book, our own work on these small cottage projects and get them out and get the culture changed. Because in some ways, the innovation really is actually we need to go back to 1996 and the work on the CMC um, mediated communication. We need to grow that again. So it's, it's almost we need to go back to go forward. So it's really asking Martin about how we really push back against the culture of innovation in the direction of LMSs versus innovation to look back and reflect on how we really use CMC really well. Yeah, he was prolific in thinking about this a couple of years ago because he said, like, what do we have if there's no, if there's an alternative to face-to-face, if there is no alternative to -to face-to-face, it's posing some what's on the horizon. And I like that you two have 
actually said like it's up to us to be part of that dialogue and still to have conversations among our our peers and our colleagues and our communities at our institutions but even broader because i think we probably can solve some of these um problems so thanks martin for having us think on a a Friday, pondering your work. And thank you both Claire and Mark for joining. I really appreciate the time. Um, we hope that people listen to the episode and hey, maybe have a response or comment or thoughts of their own in whatever shape and form. So thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. You've been listening to Between the Chapters with your host, Laura Pisquini. For more information or to subscribe to Between the Chapters and 25 Years of EdTech, visit 25years.opened.ca.